everybody. So great to see you all. And I just want to thank the worship team. You know, week after week, they get up here and uh, serve us and serve the Lord. And so, so grateful for that. And if you are a guest here this morning, a special welcome to you. My name is Andy Middlecoff. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd love to meet you. I'll be out in the courtyard or out in the lobby afterwards. Uh, uh, but also, you can uh, go to the guest welcome booth. If you are a guest here, we'd love to give you a gift. And thank you for coming. And certainly ask any of us uh, any questions you may have. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to continue in our study of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to see what he has to say to us today from that scripture. So Matthew chapter 5, if you're using one of the Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, it's on page 760. If you're newer to the Bible, it's in the New Testament, it's the first book. If you turn about the quarter, the last quarter of the Bible, um, you'll hit somewhere around Matthew. So Matthew chapter 5, page 760. And uh, this morning, we're going to uh, get into some topics, some challenging topics. Uh, lust, adultery, and divorce. And so when Eric leaves, he leaves me with the easy topics, right? So uh, <laughs> um, if you have any kids here that you think, ah, it's, you know what, maybe I want to wait for them to, to have these conversations until they're a little older. That's understandable. You can Take them out if you want. I promise it won't be rated R, uh, but just a little forewarning. So, anyone thankful that it's a three-day weekend? Yes, and it's, that means it's Veterans Day. Uh, we need to be thankful more than just getting the day off, right? But thankful to those who served us, served our nation, um, and gave uh, of, uh, potentially of their lives, right? So, um, if there are any veterans in here, we want to thank you very much for the service you gave. This week in my men's Bible study on Wednesday nights, uh, one of the men just shared some of the statistics about how many uh, veterans end up committing suicide, and I had no idea. Um, it just shows the turmoil that they, they faced, many of them faced, um, and what they continue to face as they deal with that. So let's pray for them. Let's thank the Lord for the country we live in, and let's uh, ask the Lord to guide us as we get into his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth and here this morning as it is in heaven. Lord, we are grateful to you for men and women who have um, served our country, this great country. Uh, Lord, thank you for giving them the opportunity. And I pray for any in here that are here this morning that you would uh, encourage them and strengthen them. If any of them are depressed or suffering, that you would comfort them and Help them to look to you and have others to, to support them. Lord, help us to be supportive to the veterans in our community, in our nation. Lord, and as we gather together this morning, we pray that you, Father, your precious Son, your precious Holy Spirit would open our eyes and ears and hearts and minds to what you have to say to us this morning, Lord God. Help us to cherish it. Help us to listen with the intent to obey it. And it's in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. So when God came down from heaven to this earth, what did he say about these challenging topics of lust, of adultery, of divorce? In order to see this and better understand it, we need to ask, um, what is the context of the Sermon on the Mount? 
Because whenever we're studying the Bible, we need to look at the context, the surrounding verses and chapters and so forth of the context to really understand a specific point. And to understand what he says about divorce and and marriage and and lust and adultery, we really need to understand the full context of the book of Matthew, chapters 21 through 28. Uh, The book of Matthew is called a what? A gospel. It's one of the four gospels. And the word gospel means what? Good news. And we hear that so often. It's like, oh yeah, it's good news. You know, uh, um, it's good news, guys, isn't it? It's good news because of what happens ultimately at the end. The, the, our Savior who was sinless was willing and able to suffer and die for us, for me and you, for the sins that we have done. But in order for us to really appreciate that and understand what He did for us, we need to understand the bad news. And you see, um, part of the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to expose us to the bad news so that when we get to the end of the gospel, we go, oh, there's the good news. I need that. And as we go through this morning and talk about divorce and adultery and lust, those are hard topics to talk about, we're going to see that all of us are guilty of one or more of those sins. And we say, what hope is there for us? What's the gospel? That's why Christ came. That's why Christ died. That's why Christ rose from the dead. That's a major purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is by the end of reading the Sermon on the Mount, if someone takes it to heart, no one can walk away from that and go, oh yeah, I'm good with God. I'm righteous. I'm holy. Like the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing, oh, we're, we're so good. Jesus was trying to show them, no, you're not. Even the most spiritual people, even the most righteous people in this world are condemned and guilty without Christ. With Christ, we're forgiven. Another major purpose in the Sermon on the Mount is, as Chris Moore talked about a couple weeks ago, is that God wants us to be salt and light in this world, right? Salt meaning preserving what's good and true and right, and light meaning exposing the truth, exposing love in the midst of darkness. So he wants us to, by obeying these commands in the Sermon on the Mount, be salt and light in this world. And then a third purpose that we find in the um, Sermon on the Mount is the golden rule. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, that's towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, let me summarize what I'm trying to say here, is this. Do to others what you would have them do to you. In other words, treat other people like you want to be treated. Really, it's another way of saying the second greatest commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself, right? So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is doing three main things. He's pointing out, look, you need a Savior. I am your Savior. And secondly, I want you to be salt and light in this world. Follow my instructions and you will be. And then thirdly, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to serve others and love them as I have loved them and as I have loved you. So with these realities in mind, with the context in mind, let's look at the specific details of what he says about adultery and lust and divorce. So first of all, how can we be salt and light in this world? How can we practice the golden rule, truly loving our neighbor as ourselves in our daily lives? Well, first of all, if you're following the notes, Control your lustful desires 
and have eyes and heart for your spouse alone. We see this starting in verse 27, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. When God came down from heaven to earth, in and through Jesus Christ, did he sort of um, change the commandments of God for a modern age? Saying, oh, those were too restrictive, too old-fashioned. we got to change things up. Like today, our culture says, oh, uh, Jesus says, just do whatever makes you happy. Is that what Jesus said when he came? Jesus certainly wants us to be people of joy. And he says, you know what? When you, when you follow my commandments, when you have a relationship with me, there's true happiness. There's true joy. Yes, there is momentary pleasure in the sins of this world, but those are fleeting. He says true happiness is in him. Jesus didn't come to change the word of God. He came to enforce it and to clarify it, right? That commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is the seventh commandment. What did Jesus say about it? Look at verse 28. He says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Notice, he doesn't water it down. He doesn't sort of relax it, as he spoke of earlier in in Matthew chapter 5. He upholds the law and clarifies what it's talking about. Uh, The commandment not to commit adultery also primarily was a heart thing. One thing Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is speaking directly to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rabbis, the teachers of the Jewish people of that day were very much watering down the Scriptures. They were saying, as long as you don't actually commit the physical act of adultery, you can fantasize about it all you want. Jesus was saying no. No, it's a heart thing. God wants our hearts. He says, from the beginning, the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments has always meant, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Follow through with what I'm saying from your heart. Have a pure and undivided heart towards your spouse. So what does it mean to lust? Here in verse 28, he speaks of lust. To look at a woman with lustful intent. The word lust literally means a strong desire. Now, there can be good, strong desires, and there can be selfish, strong desires, right? Um, God has made us to have a strong desire for our husband or for our wife, right? That's not wrong. Read the Song of Solomon. Um, Sexual pleasure in and of itself is not a sin, but it's within a marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime. So what does the word lust mean in this context, the, the selfish type of lust? Well, up on the screen, you'll see the next fill in the blank. It's this, lust is a selfish desire for, for sexual gratification outside of marriage. I appreciate the way the Life Application Study Bible puts it. It says, lust is a deliberate and repeated filling of one's mind with fantasies that would be evil if acted on. And part of what Christ is saying is, even if we're fantasizing about it, it is evil in his heart, in his mind. So does it mean then that if um, somebody, if you, if you notice somebody that you think is attractive, that that's lust? Not necessarily, no. It's, it's what you do with the thought once you've seen that person, whether it's on a screen or in real life, 
what you do with that thought. It's the second look, so to speak. And it might not even be a second look physically. It might be just a second look up here. So take a look at the word looks in verse 28. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. You guys who enjoy grammar, this is a present tense participle, which means an ongoing, continual look, a stare, a gaze, right? It's not just, oh, you notice somebody and you move on with your day. It's you're stewing over it. You're considering it. You're allowing it to become a fantasy within your heart and mind. So at what point does it become a sin? It's when you, when you use it to, to uh, gratify your sexual desires within your heart. Now, as you're reading this, I don't know about you, but um, there, there may be some that say, well, wait a minute, I don't understand. How is it that simply looking at somebody and fantasizing about them and desiring them could be a sin? I could maybe see how the actual physical act of adultery could be sin, but how could, this, how could that be a sin? It's like talking to a friend of mine, uh, an old skateboard buddy of mine, and trying to explain the gospel to him, and he wasn't a Christian, and to, to really help him understand why Christ died for us and rose from the dead, of course, I have to tell him the bad news first. And to really help him understand that he was a sinner, I talked about Matthew chapter 5. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do here, is point out how sinful we really are. And I said, yeah, Jesus said that even looking at a woman lustfully is considered adultery to God. And he said, you Christians are crazy. No, that's right. We do stand out, don't we, right? It's a big part of being salt and light. We're going to be distinct. We're going to be different from the world. And people, some people will think we're crazy. Some people will hate us. And some people will go, oh, that's a much better way to live than the way I'm living. Who is this God you serve? And that's ultimately the hope, right? So how is it that, that simply looking and fantasizing and desiring in a lustful way somebody who you're not married to is sin. Well, for many reasons, it's a sin. Let me just point out a couple major ones. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God, right? We see it up on the screen. Jesus said this more than once, right? Um, uh, one of the Pharisees comes to him and says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your what? Your heart and with all your soul and with all your what? Mind, what are we sinning with? What organs of our body are we sinning with, so to speak, when we're lusting after somebody who we're not married to? With our heart and our mind. We're desiring with our heart. We're fantasizing about it in our mind, right? What's wrong with that? What God wants more than anything else is your heart. Is your heart. He doesn't just want external obedience, like, fine, I'll take out the trash. <laughs> you know, and you go and take out the trash. He wants your heart to be in it. He wants your heart to love him and be fully committed and devoted to him, right? And our minds as well. You know, and, and then the second commandment, it also, lust also breaks the second commandment. What's the second greatest commandment in the Bible? Love others. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Is your husband or wife your neighbor? Yeah, we often forget about that, right? We're like, oh, I'm going to be really kind to the people I see out here. But when I get home, man, if my wife or my husband doesn't do exactly the way I want it, I'm going to let them have it. You wouldn't treat other people that way. Well, your wife, your husband, they're your neighbor too, right? 
In fact, we learn how to love other, other neighbors by learning how to love the closest neighbor to us. So when we're lusting after somebody else, are we loving our husband or our wife? No, we're not. You know, picture a man with his arm around his wife on the couch telling her, I love you. Well, throughout the day, he'd been lusting after pictures on his phone and women in the office. Is that real love? It's not. Also, loving your neighbor as yourself, are you loving the person that you're lusting after? No. No. Really, lust takes and love gives. Lust takes, but love gives. It's, it's really the opposite of what God is trying to create us to be is into men and women who genuinely want what's best for the other and to give and to serve and to bless them and to point them to Christ rather than taking, taking, taking for me, myself, and I. Um, a, a man who I know quite well uh, that none of you know. So um, before he got married to his first wife, he uh, had a lot of relationships with other women at his work and uh, on Facebook. And then he got married and all through the marriage, he had a lot of relationships with women on Facebook and at his work. Um, and eventually one of them kind of fell for him and he divorced his wife and left his kids and got married to this new, new woman. And um, in the short time that they've been married, she's threatened to divorce him multiple times and kicked him out of the house at least once because he continues to have relationships with multiple women at his office and on Facebook. When this came to light to me, I had this thought. We need to learn to control our sexual desires or they will control us. And that's the next fill in the blank there. Learn to control your selfish, sinful desires or they will control you. Whether it's with this issue that we're talking about now or any other sinful issue, we need to learn to control them by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us or they will control us. And, and those desires will bring us to a place that we never thought that we would ever get to. So how, how can we control our lusts? How can we control these desires? Well, Jesus gives us a couple ways right here. There are many uh, ways that the scriptures tell us, but right here in chapter five, starting in verse 29, he tells us two ways to do this. He says, first of all, in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one, uh, one of your members, that is one part of your body, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, that is one part of your body, than for your whole body to go into hell. Okay, so this morning we're going to do something a little unique. Uh, we're going to be gouging out some eyes and cutting off some hands. So on the count of three, ready? No. Um, is Jesus being literal here? Go ahead and cut those hands off and gouge those eyes out. Uh, no. One way we know this is think about this. If I gouged out my right eye, or if you gouged out your right eye, or cut off your right hand, could you still lust or commit adultery? Yeah, of course you could. How about if you gouged out both your eyes and cut off both your hands? Could you still lust or, or, or commit adultery? Yes, of course, because it's, it's in the heart and in the mind where these things take place, right? So he's not being literal, but, but what is he doing? He's saying, 
take drastic measures with these sins. These are big, these are, this is a big deal to God. It's not, oh, fine, you did lusted, no big deal. No, it's a big deal to God. Oh, you committed adultery, no big deal. No, he's saying take drastic measures. Here's an example. If the devices you own cause you to stumble, then ask someone you trust to put blocks on those devices so that they don't become a temptation for you anymore, right? Or like your right hand, cutting off your right hand might be like severing a relationship. Maybe there's someone you work with or someone, you know, wherever. You might need to work in a different office. Whatever you need to do, sever that relationship. Break it off. Jesus is saying, this is extremely important. Something in Scripture that's clear is this. We need to depend on God, on His strength, on His wisdom, on His presence with us in order to overcome any sin. And certainly the sin of lust and adultery. We need His power. Admitting to God, God, I I can't do this on my own. I trip, I stumble, I fall. God, give me the strength. Change my desires. Fill me with Your Spirit. And let me walk in the newness of life. In holiness, in purity, in righteousness. And man, there's testimony after testimony of God doing this in the lives of men and women. It's a powerful thing. There's hope, you guys, in the midst of this hard battle of holiness and purity. And we also need uh, other people in our lives. A friend, someone of the same gender. Hey, open up with them. Someone you trust. I need, I need you to be praying for me. I need to meet with you. Let's talk about this. And we also have a couple groups at our church that, that deal with this issue. We've got one called Conquerors and one called Act Like Men uh, that help with these issues. And so if you're interested in that, you can go onto our church's website, go to Men's Ministry, Look for men's groups, and those will be a couple of them in there. And you can contact those who lead it. You can text them. They're not going to judge you, but they would love to help you in the journey that they've been through as well. So thinking of this then, how how can we control our our selfish desires in this area? Um, Does does the way people dress um, impact our ability to or not to lust? Does the way people dress impact it? Yeah, it does. Um, uh, so can we help people avoid the sin of lust by the way we dress? Yes, thank you. See, that's why I wore a loose shirt this morning. Because I've been working out lately. So, <gasps> no. so is it true that there's a, there's a way to dress that's attractive and then there's a way to dress that's seductive? Is it true that there are pictures to post on Instagram and other platforms that are attractive and that there are pictures to post that are seductive? God's not against being attractive, but he wholeheartedly hates being seductive because he knows the sin it creates. And and this makes me think, where should we look to get our cues on how to dress? Should we look to MTV, to Hollywood, to Nashville, to Instagram, to TikTok? No, thank you. Right, no. But that's, that's where people are looking. We need to look to God's Word. And again, God doesn't say in His Word, oh, just look as ugly as you can. Look, old, look as old-fashioned as you can. No, being attractive is fine. But He says, dress in a way that's modest 
and with propriety. Amen? God's word is very clear on that. We can help each other by the way we dress. And notice how he talks about hell. He brings it up a couple times, which indicates to me that this is a serious thing, right? So at the end of verse 29, for example, it says, better that you lose one of your members, one part of your body, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Let me ask you a question. Does this mean that whenever you commit adultery or you lust after someone who you're not married to, that you're going to go to hell? Without Christ, the answer is yes. That's what he's saying there, isn't it? With Christ, there's absolute and total and perfect forgiveness and cleansing when we are sincere, when we truly confess that sin is wrong, and when we truly say, God, I want to change. That's called repentance, right? And that's our hope, you guys. In the midst of this battle, and we realize that it is a battle, it's a daily choice. It's a daily battle to say, no, I'm not going to look. No, I'm not going to um, go through and flirt with that person and so forth. That God, in the midst of this valley, I can have hope that there's complete, total forgiveness even when I stumble, even when I get selfish and try to satisfy my own cravings when I truly, genuinely confess the sin and repent. That's why Jesus dies at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, right? The bad news that he's pointing out in the Sermon on the Mount is cleansed and forgiven through his death and resurrection. Anyone say, thank you, Jesus, for that? Yes, amen. Thank you, Jesus, for that. So then, how can we be salt and light in this world? How can we stand out and be different to show people what Christ is like? How can we love our neighbor as ourselves, practicing the golden rule? One way, of course, is to control our lustful desires and have eyes and heart for our spouse alone. Secondly, if you're following the notes, honor your wedding vows. Honor your wedding vows. Keep your marriage vows. We see this starting in verse 31. Jesus says this to us. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In verse 31, Jesus speaks of this certificate of divorce. He's referring to the Old Testament, which is the first uh, three-fourths of the Bible. And in a place called Deuteronomy chapter 24, a certificate of divorce. And the intent of the certificate of divorce uh, was so that uh, it would protect a woman so that she could then get married to somebody else if her husband left her. It was also a way to make a man think twice before he would divorce his wife as well. And so the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the others, were watering this down and changing and using it as a justification to divorce their wives. But that wasn't the intent at all. So Jesus clarifies the intent. You've heard that it was said, just give them a certificate of divorce and marry whoever you want, divorce whoever you want for any and every reason. Jesus says, no, no. He says in verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is saying divorce is a sin. He goes on a little later in Matthew in chapter 19 explaining it further. Take a look up on the screen there. 
Um, again, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, were trying to trip him up, and, and um, they were watering down uh, the truth of God's word. And it says, a Pharisee came up to him, that's up to Jesus, and tested him. He's not the one you want to test, by the way. He happens to know all the answers. Um, he tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You see how they're, they're, they're watering it down. They would teach in that day, it's, it's fine to divorce for, for any reason. You don't, you know, your wife isn't doing something you like. She's not doing what you want her to do. Just divorce her and marry somebody else for any cause, right? Verse four, he, that's Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And it's kind of funny to me because he's talking about himself. He's the one who created them male and female. But anyway, in verse five, it goes on and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, when you read this, when you read what Jesus says in the Bible about divorce, why is Jesus come across so strongly about divorce? Why is it so important to him that men and women keep their marriage vows? Well, many reasons. Let's look at a couple of them. First of all, we see here from verse, verse 4 that God created marriage. Marriage wasn't something that people invented and came up with. Marriage is something that God instituted and that God loves and cherishes. It's something that he made. And we look at marriages in our country today, uh, more marriages end in divorce than marriages that continue until death do us part. Why? Part of it, I think, is because Satan really wants to destroy marriages. Why would Satan care? Because it's something that God made. Why does God want to destroy marriages? Why does God want to destroy the church? Because it's something that God made and God's at work doing. So Satan wants to destroy it. Um, not only that, why is marriage so important to God? Well, because it's God who joins the couple, the man and the woman together in that marriage. Um, look again at the end at verse six. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We get married and we say, I do. And so we are joining in, in, in that reality that we're saying, I do, but it's God who ultimately joins us together. It's not just Adam and Eve. It's each marriage ever since then. God is joining those marriages together. It's a God thing. So if we break it up, we're going against God's plan, God's design, God's doing, right? And then also, why, why would God be so serious about us keeping our marriage vows? Well, because of the devastation it causes in the lives of the people who go through divorce and in the lives of their children, in the lives of their relatives, in the lives of their friends. There's such turmoil when a couple divorces, isn't there? Another friend of mine, not the same one I referred to earlier, another friend of mine um, said, hey, anytime someone uh, is considering divorce, let me know and, and see if they're willing to talk to me because I want to share some things with them. I said, well, what, what would you share with them? Take a look at these bullet points of what he would share with someone considering a divorce. He says, divorce doesn't solve or resolve anything. It doesn't end problems. It adds problems. It complicates past, present, and future relationships. Divorce sets a precedence for children to follow in their adult lives. It destroys lives, tears families apart, 
and divides friends. Divorce takes unresolved baggage from one relationship and brings it to another. It devolves a marriage without dealing with the problems. Divorce can be avoided with loving care, attentiveness to each other's needs, meaningful communication, and Christian counseling. Those are words to hold on to. Ultimately, choosing to divorce is the opposite of what God is trying to create us to be. People who are others first. People who are loving our neighbor as ourselves. Rather, divorce says, I'm out of here. I'm doing my own thing. I'm protecting myself. I'm watching out for number one, right? So does the Bible ever give us any, any options when divorce is seen as something that God permits, that God allows? Do we ever see that in Scripture? Well, we see it uh, one place here in verse 32. Take a look at verse 32. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Notice the word except. Except. Uh, whoever divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality. Jesus says the same exact words again in Matthew chapter 19. He says, except on the ground of sexual immorality. What is he getting at here? He's saying that when there is sexual immorality in the marriage, when one partner goes outside of the marriage to gratify his or her sexual desires and commits a, a sexual act with somebody else, that that breaks the oneness that God has created between husband and wife. Because whoever you sleep with, the Bible says you become one with that person. So Jesus says in this case, he says divorce is permitted. Interestingly, in the other Gospels, it doesn't speak of, it doesn't bring up that Jesus said except in the cases of sexual immorality. So some people think, oh, well then, um, it's divorce for any reason is wrong. But you have to go back to Matthew. Two different places he clarifies, except for on the basis of sexual immorality. The oneness has been broken. So does that mean that you have to divorce your spouse if they cheat on you? No, absolutely not. No. He's just saying that if you do, it's not a sin and you're free to marry somebody else. And that's not a sin or adultery either. Are there any other grounds for divorce where God says, that's not a sin? I'm permitting that. There's one other in 1 Corinthians 7.15. We'll look at that briefly up on the screen. Speaking of a husband and wife married, one is a Christian and one is not a Christian, and the non-Christian wants to leave the marriage. Take a look at what this says. 1 Corinthians 7.15, the Apostle Paul says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, referring in the context to divorce, seeking to divorce, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, that is the Christian in the marriage, is not enslaved, meaning not bound to that marriage. God has called you to peace. So if your non-Christian husband or wife is like, hey, I'm out of here, certainly you're going to try to make it work, but ultimately at the end of the day, you have to say, okay, God's saying just let him, let him divorce you. You can get a divorce. It's not a sin. You're free then to marry another Christian. So some of you are sitting here this morning, and you're reeling. You're thinking, man, this is rough. Talking about divorce. Maybe you've been the victim of divorce. 
You tried to make it work. Your spouse didn't want to make it work. And it's painful. Remember this. Jesus, who's telling you this, he's resurrected from the dead. He's with you. He is for you. He lives within you. He's going to walk with you through all the pain and all the heartache that you're going through. And maybe someone in here is looking at this going, oh my goodness, I divorced my spouse for reasons that were not biblical. What am I to do? Is there any hope for me? Yes, there's an abundance of hope because Christ died and rose from the dead for you. What God wants is for you to come to a place where you admit, okay, I had a part in it too. And what I did was wrong. Forgive me, God. I'm trusting Christ's death on that cross and resurrection for me. And just like any other sin, he completely and totally cleanses and forgives that sin. Anyone want to say thank you, Lord, for that? Thank you, Jesus. He is the forgiver of our sins. Now, um, one final way that he says that we can be lights in this world that I'm going to touch on with one minute because we only have one minute left <laughs> um, is this. Uh, if you're following in the notes, follow through with what you tell people you will do. Follow through. Be a person who's dependable. Jesus says this starting in verse 33. Jesus said, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that, anything more than this comes from evil. What Jesus is saying is be a dependable person. Don't you love it when people in your life, you ask them to do something, they say yes, you know it's going to get done. I'll tell you what, it brings me such delight and joy when I ask my kids to do something and it gets done. It's like, yes, you know, man. God said, be that kind of person because that models me so well. Isn't Jesus one who does what he says he's going to do? And there's another reason to thank him. He does what he says he's going to do. To be a light for Christ, to show people Christ, we also need to be dependable. When we say yes, we need to follow through. When we say no, we need to follow through. With these things in mind, then let's, let's pray to our awesome Savior. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for graciously and mercifully sending your Son. And Jesus, thank you so much for being our, our great high priest who understands what we go through because you were tempted in every way, but you did not sin. And I pray, Father, that today as we battle the temptations of lust and adultery and divorce and, and, and being unfaithful to our word, that you would empower us, you would enable us, you would strengthen us to obey you, to love you, to love our neighbor as ourselves. We can't do it without your strength. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless each one here with, with another brother or sister in Christ to, to help uphold us, to do what is right, to pray for each other. Lord, and I pray for each and every one of us this morning. Lord, help us to find hope in you. We are guilty. 
but we are forgiven in and through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it. And it's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Let's worship the Lord for this.